This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals and the subdivision, the second coming of Christ and number three this evening of the New Testament aspects of that second coming. Number three. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, and I hope you will, we read together the 26th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. We have read the 26th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and when we reach the end of that chapter, Paul is on his way to Rome. So that in a measure, the 26th chapter of the Acts brings us to the close of Paul's public ministry. I would like you to notice that at the very end of the Acts of the Apostles he's glad that the man before whom he's witnessing is an expert concerning all the questions and customs of the Jews. Now if the mystery, the truth in which we rejoice had now been given by the Apostle Paul, how is it that the Jew is still so dominant in his mind? You see, there are, there are two great points to consider in, in these scriptures. The centre of all things is Christ. But with regard to dispensational teaching, the presence or the absence of the Jew is vital. And it's not possible to say that the Jew's gone yet this man is still speaking about the Jews. He calls himself a Pharisee and he not only says so, but he says in the sixth chapter, I have hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. And then he says further, unto which promise our twelve tribes, of course he ought to have said um, our two tribes and the ten lost tribes, but apparently he didn't know they were lost. Things that Paul didn't know is remarkable, isn't it? Instantly serving God, day and night hope to come. And then, later on, he says, uh, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, and he tells you what he said, concerning the sufferings of Christ, the rising from the dead, and that he shall show light unto the people and the Gentiles. Or somebody says, ah, that's where I've got you, because to show light unto the Gentiles is the mystery. Well, then old Simeon knew that, because when he saw the infant Christ in the temple in the second chapter of Luke, he said, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of my people Israel. And Isaiah knew it. So I think that's not the feature at all. So now we've got that emphasis, that right to the very close of the Acts, still speaking about the hope of his people the twelve tribe people. I'm rather glad he put that in because there's so much tendency to spiritualize Israel and make it the church. But it's rather difficult to make the twelve tribes who are waiting for the promise to their fathers to be the church of the Gentiles, isn't it? Well, that may be looking put in the cart before the horse, but we've started our examination of the Acts of the Apostles with the 26th chapter. But the point is this, that you do not leave the Jew until you get to Acts 28, and the last occurrence is found in these verses. Verse 20. For the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain, and then the Jews 
are spoken of in the remaining verses as having great conversation among themselves and finally, verse 29, they departed or were dismissed. Well now I must get back to the beginning and uh, our subject of course is still the question of the second coming. We have looked at a series of studies, we've had made a series of studies in the Old Testament to get its background, its promises and its colouring and now we've begun the New Testament. We found that Matthew 24 links the second coming of Christ as related there to the prophecy of Daniel. There's no possibility of dealing with Matthew 24 and ignoring the fact that Daniel the prophet is the sort of pivot upon which it is uh, balanced. Well now we come to the, the Acts of the Apostles and we look at the first chapter. The Acts of the Apostles, strictly speaking, does not commence until we get to verse 15. Because Luke, the writer of the gospel that bears his name, Luke's gospel, is the writer of the Acts of the Apostles. And just as I, uh, wisely I think, take a hint, uh, many times I say, well now you remember what we were looking at last time. Well, Luke says that. You remember what I've just written to you. So in the first 15 or 14 verses, he says, now, this is how the gospel ends. This is where it overlaps. This is where the new story begins. And among other things, we are told in verse 3 that our Saviour occupied 40 days. Uh, I'm not binding it down slavishly to how long a day or whether every day was used, but during a period of 40 days, he spoke of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Imagine a 40-day Bible class, friends, conducted by the risen Christ. Takes your breath away, doesn't it? Makes me feel I ought to sit down there instead. 40 days. Now, if I had a Bible class for a period of 40 days and went through the Old Testament scriptures as Christ did, beginning at Moses and all the scriptures. He expounded unto them in all the, the scriptures the things concerning himself. Shouldn't I be rather vexed if the very first question that somebody in this meeting asked was nothing to do with 40 days study? Well, you say, well, you may be a bad teacher. Yes, but are we going to say that Christ could take his disciples through the Old Testament scriptures during a period of 40 days and then the very first question they ask as a consequence has no relevancy. Well, that's what, that's what many a commentator says. Oh, he says, these people ought never to have been asking about the kingdom of Israel. They ought to have been concerned about the church, which began at Pentecost, as they say. So shall we look? As a consequence of, these, of this teaching, it says in verse 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord... Now, they didn't say, Lord, is the kingdom ever to be restored to Israel? Have we made a mistake in calling you king? They never questioned that at all. Nobody could question that if they'd been taken seriously through the law and the prophets. They simply said, Lord, wilt thou at this time? That's the word that's to be considered. Is it going to take place now? Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, you'd have to be a magician to make restore again, 
the kingdom to Israel means start something new, which is the church. And yet that juggler is done. Folks tell you that this was not in the mind of Christ at all. But he never rebuked them and said, now you've misunderstood me. He said, look. He said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. He never said it was wrong to expect the restoration to take place, but he said, I cannot tell you. And the reason why he couldn't tell them is because Israel were going to be given a second opportunity. They were commanded to remain at Jerusalem, say to the same people that crucified the Lord, the second opportunity, and are not inventing a word because the parable says that first of all they received an invitation, which they refused, and they were sent back a second time to say, all things are now ready, so they were. Christ had died now, risen again, come. So he said, unless I'm going to come down and say, but it's all going to be in vain, and Israel are not going to repent, I mustn't say that, otherwise it stultifies all witness. You just leave that to the Father, and go on with the witness that he's entrusted to you. So the first chapter of the Acts opens with that um, question, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? When we come to the the, uh, 15th verse, we have the Acts commencing with one particular thought in mind. Why should Peter immediately seize upon one thing and say, there's only 11 of us? Well, 11 good men is quite good, isn't it? Oh, no, he said, we must, we must, we must have 12. Well, of course, even you, friends, know, don't you, that our Saviour had said that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit upon the throne of his glory, you shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So back again we are. They have got in mind the thought that the kingdom might be set up. It might be. And if so, one throne empty. That will never do. So, it says in verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. These men know that the scripture they're handling is the word of the Holy Ghost. There's no trifling with it. And then there are some who criticize them. They say that they only set two people, two men before the Lord. They didn't give the Lord the opportunity to choose whom he would. But friends, there was a condition. There was a condition. Here's the condition. Verse 21. Wherefore of these men, which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And unless somebody's going to put his finger on the word must and say, who told you that it should be so? Here's his, here's his reason. I'm quoting one verse from John's Gospel. And ye also shall bear witness because ye have been with me from the beginning. That's witness. You've been with me from the beginning. You can say, I was there. And even in a court of law today, you don't say that somebody's aunt told your friend that, you know, that way things, oh no, you must, you must either say I was there and saw it or you stand down. So there were only two men out of that company of 120 who began with the baptism of John. On the Sunday mornings, there's one friend that comes to this meeting 
and there's one lady that comes to this meeting. And if we were going to have an arrangement that there's going to be a committee, and one person must be added who came to the very first meeting I spoke on dispensational truth in London, there's Mr. Kingston who comes on a Sunday morning and the old wife. And none of you qualify. So you're going to be not upset because the condition is there. Were you there or not? It doesn't say you're not so learned or you're not so good looking or... No, no, it's just the fact that you were not there. So these men make up the number 12. And the moment the 12's made up, the day of Pentecost comes and people say, and the church was baptised into one body. Well, my Bible's a special one. My Bible says nothing about baptising the church into one body. It says upon 12 men and 12 men only... There were tongues of fire seen on them and they all spake in the tongues of the people that were gathered there from twelve countries. Count them in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 afterwards, if you will. This country specified. So we, now we've got this emphasis. Here's twelve men speaking in twelve different languages. Not gabbling in an unknown tongue that people do not understand because these men say verse um, uh, 5 and 6 of chapter 2, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because they, every man heard them speak in his own dialect, not merely his own language. They, they, they heard a man speak in the dialect of the Galileans, which was a little different from the people in Judah. That's a gift of tongues. And these men had their marching orders. A man would have to be very low in intelligence if he received the gift of speaking in Dustani and he didn't know where he was going to be sent by the Lord, wouldn't he? There they were. Now this is, this is what Pentecost was. Not the beginning of the church, but the appointing of those twelve men who were going to sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel if the time of restoration came. When you get to the other end of the story, as we may do possibly tonight, I don't know, we find that Paul takes the place that the Lord occupied. I don't mean usurping it. He doesn't spend 40 days, but he has one day appointed and they have a whole day's conference and he goes through the same book that our Saviour did, the Lord Moses and the prophets, to the same people. And this time, he spoke about what the Holy Ghost said. Peter says it in the first chapter. Paul says, Well, saith the Holy Ghost to our fathers, seeing you shall see and not perceive, the heart of this people is wax gross, we turn to the Gentiles. And that's the end of Israel for the time being, until God picks them up again. So that the point I want to make in the first instance is that from one end of the Acts of the Apostles to the other, there's one people that dominate the book, and it's the one hope of that people that dominates the book. In the last chapter but one, the Acts 26, for the hope of the promise of God made unto our fathers. In the last chapter itself, Acts 28, the hope of Israel. Am I bound with this chain? Well now the next thing is this. During the period covered by the Acts of the Apostles, Paul had a ministry which was uh, free ministry in the sense that he was not in prison. He was free to plot an itinerary. 
In fact, there are two or three missionary journeys with which the Acts of the Apostles is largely concerned. And as a consequence of that missionary activity, there was produced, blessed be God for our sakes too, seven great epistles. Those epistles, as far as I know, are in this order. The only one I cannot place in strict order is the epistle to the Hebrews. But as the others, it's almost fairly certain that Galatians was the first. Then we have one and two Thessalonians. We have one and two Corinthians. We have Romans. And somewhere along that line, we have Hebrews. Now surely, one of the most essential principles of right thinking is a statement that reads like this. No part can be greater than the whole. Well, is that obvious? Yes. Well, now, if the Acts of the Apostles is the whole, and inside the Acts of the Apostles is the part that Paul wrote, surely you cannot say that the outside history deals with Israel's hope, and the inside part of it deals with the church. That man is standing at the end of his career in the Acts, saying he's still connected with the hope of Israel. So did you see? We've now got to consider not only the Acts of the Apostles and its testimony concerning the second coming of Christ and the hope that they entertained, but we've got to remember that the epistles during that period were never, had not a word to say about the present parenthetical dispensation of the mystery and its own peculiar hope. The hope was still the hope of these people. Will thou at this time restore? Will it be restored? They are still waiting for it in Acts 26 unto which our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. And then, the closure. They failed. And it's only then the hope changes from being blessed in the earth or being blessed in the heavenly Jerusalem to being blessed where Christ sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all. That never comes into the story till you're out of the Acts and into Paul's prison ministry. And that has a great bearing, of course, upon the hope that they entertain. And a person will sit and listen to you and be very nodding his head until he suddenly says, hey, 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 wait a minute, do you mean to say 1 Thessalonians 4? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 was written very early in the Acts of the Apostles. Don't get worrying about 1 Thessalonians 4. Go to the epistle to the Romans. And even in the epistle to the Romans, the hope that is entertained there is to do with the seed of Jesse who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. That's the hope in the last epistle of the period. And the seed of David and the stem of Jesse and the reigning over Gentiles has nothing in common with the blessed hope of the mystery. Other words, otherwise words have no value. Well now let's go on a little bit further. We have in the uh, third and fourth chapters, a miracle. Now this was not wrought merely as a staggering piece of wonder. It has a very distinctive teaching. Nearly all the miracles, if not every one of them, have a double purpose. An act of kindness and compassion immediately, but a foreshadowing of truth. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, the blind shall see out of obscurity, and Israel once 
It's like a leprous condition, should be cleansed. All the, all the miracles have a sort of double meaning on purpose. They're not something to garp at. They're something to bow in the presence of and learn its meaning. Now then, the third chapter. Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. You see, people say the church began at Pentecost in Acts 2 and then Peter goes up to the temple and takes part in the Jewish ritual service even though the church has uh, uh, started according to them. doesn't fit, you know. I'd have a difficulty, and so would you, to go to a temple where blood sacrifice was essential to the worship and I read in my, my book is offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down, finished. Don't you see, we're not quite in harmony with truth if we do those things. So, the point is that there was a lame man expecting an alms to be given him. Instead of that, Peter reveals one of the things which are characteristic of him. He hadn't got very much, I suppose, to do with. I don't suppose Peter would have made a great financier. He says, silver and gold have I none. And writing his first epistle, he says, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, like that, you see. So, wouldn't be much good employing Peter around about this neighborhood, would it? With all its banks and insurances and financial wizards. So, he says, but what I have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Will you notice the insistence in the early Acts of that additional name to Christ? We never find it written in our epistles. But these people were being reminded that the one they fed was an outsider and a Nazarene. The one they rejected. That's the one they've yet to acknowledge as Lord. They've got to look upon him whom they pierced and acknowledge him. So he says, in that name, rise and walk. Well then, there's a little bit of a concern about this. And it picks up in verse 19 the prophetic teaching which this healing of the lame man was intended to bring to their mind. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing, notice these words, refreshing, and restitution, and restoration in the first chapter. They are different words, but they all impinge on the same thought. Not something newly created, Something restored. Now the church of the mystery is not something restored for it's never been in existence until Paul received the revelation in the prison ministry. But here's something which has to do with restitution. Um, verse 19, I must start again. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So the second coming, which is insisted upon in these early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, is in harmony with what Paul said in the 26th chapter, speaking none other things than those which Moses and the prophets should come to pass. Now, can you blink these things? Can you hide them and do justice to the book? We go on a bit further. He says in verse 25, ye are the children of the prophets. Who are? 
Well, the apostle writing to the Ephesians tells them that they were completely aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They could never be called children of the prophets, but Israel could. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers. We have no fathers. No covenant's ever been made with them. And then at last he says in verse 26, unto you first. That's to Israel. God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquity. And the concluding thought about this typical parable of miracle are in the words of Acts 4. Verse 10, Be it known unto all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. Verse 12, Neither is there salvation. Now you say, why do you stop like that? Why, because I'm drawing your attention to the word whole and the word salvation. But if you have the original in front of you, you see they're the same. And in front of the word salvation is the article, the. So shall we listen to Peter and listen and hear what he said as far as we may in our own language. Even by him doth this man stand before you healed. Neither is there the healing in any other. You see what he's doing? He says that healing of that man is only a picture of the vast healing of all Israel by the same Christ whom you rejected. The same Jesus that healed that one man and makes him whole is the one that will give you the healing. And that's the word salvation in this passage. And then you remember in the last chapter, lest I should heal them, Isaiah 6. So all the emphasis upon healing in the early scriptures is a picture of the healing, salvation. So there we have a typical miracle. Now I dare not go and give the, the parallel to that in Acts 13, only you discover a very great contrast. In Acts 13, a Jew is blinded. In Acts 13, a Gentile believes. But that's another story. Suppose we turn the page and look at Stephen's speech. We're just trying to get a little background, you see, for these epistles which speak about the second coming. Now, here is a passage in chapter 7. Stephen stands up before the people and says, Men and brethren, fathers, hearken. And starts with the appearing of the God of glory to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And he comes down the story until he reaches Joseph, and then comes to a sort of little halt for a moment and says this. Uh, verse 13. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. Now he picks up the thread again and this time he focuses attention particularly on Moses. And it says in verse 35, This Moses, who they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer. So there's the two outstanding uh, points in Stephen's speech. You see what you did to Joseph. But you see what God did with him? You rejected him. And for a period he was lost to you as good as dead. But while you were in the dark, the Gentiles in Egypt were being blessed by Joseph sitting on the throne at the right hand of Pharaoh. You know the Old Testament name that's given to Joseph? Zaphnath Paneer. Well, don't bother about the margin in your authorised version because when that was written, 
Nobody could read the hieroglyphics. But you can today. And the word means the bread of life. What a type of a Joseph. How it fits the Son of God, you see, in type. That's Joseph. And then, after he's blessed Israel and married a Gentile wife, his brethren come back to him and in his presence, without knowing it, they confess how badly they treated their brother. And I always feel what a little human bit it is. Joseph goes out and weeps and washes his face and comes back again. And then, he says, every man go out except my brethren. And then he makes himself known to them. And he says, it wasn't you that sent me down to Egypt. You hated me. You sold me. And Judah, Judah sold me for 20 pieces of silver. And Judah, pronounced Judas, sold this great type of Joseph for 30 pieces of silver. You see how it works? And then we come to Moses. Just as it says the second time, Joseph, the second time, Moses. When he became 40 years of age, a great prince and a leader in Egypt, he saw some Egyptian striking one of his own compatriots. Then he intervened, and there was a quarrel, and he slew the Egyptian. And then he ran away. But that's not exactly what he said. Because Stephen, in this speech, says this. Um, they said in verse 27, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me, as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses. Now we are told in verse 25, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. Well, those words could be lifted out and quoted of Christ, couldn't they? Let me say it again. He, that is to say Christ, supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand, that's Christ's hand, would deliver them. But they understood not. And so we find there's an application of this before Stephen finishes. Verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. And they accuse them of treating Christ as their fathers did Joseph and as their fathers did Moses. But isn't it good to know that if they repeated what their fathers did, God will repeat what he did? Because in spite of the wickedness of the brethren against Joseph, Joseph was their deliverer. And in spite of the antagonism exhibited to Moses after 40 years in the wilderness, he came back again to be their deliverer. And after a long period, we don't know how long, but 40 years is a disciplinary, disciplinary period. After a long period, the true Joseph and the true Moses, the Son of God himself, will come back again. And with mighty signs and wonders confound the Pharaoh, who will then be occupying the seat. And his magicians will do miracles, as you're told in the book of the Revelation, the same as the Egyptians did. And if you go through the vials, and the plagues and the judgments of the book of the Revelation, you'll see they follow very, very closely, only on a vaster scale, the plagues that fell upon Egypt. And so we've got all this pattern, you see, to guide us. Well, that's Acts 7. Well, then he goes on to the um, 15th chapter of the Acts. I'm just picking out a few outstanding features, omitting more than I put in, necessarily. And... 
that conference that was held in the 15th chapter because they had a very, very difficult problem to face. What are we going to do? Since the ministry of Paul has gone round, we're told in the very end of the 14th chapter how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. The door of faith is opened unto the Gentiles. And a little earlier you'll discover uh, that the church had no uh, hesitation in calling Peter up before them. Now you imagine Peter as a sort of a pope with a uh, tremendous authority. But it was the church that called Peter to give an account of himself. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, <coughs> they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and didst eat with them. Well, that's no problem to you and to me. But it was a vexed problem in the early church. That as the Gentile began to believe, he brought into the synagogue all the customs and manners of his people, which were sometimes an abomination in the eyes of a Jew. So that they had to have some regulation. But I'm not dealing with that particularly, but in the midst of it, James tries to steal the people a little bit by saying, you see, we've got to be prepared for the coming in of the Gentiles. The very books that we trust, the Old Testament scriptures, have made provision for them, and he quotes it like this. Verse 14. Simeon, that is to say referring to Peter, hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and to this agree. He doesn't say this is fulfilling. He doesn't say this is the mystery that Paul is going to reveal to you presently. He says, oh no, this agrees with the words of the prophet, as it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. So when Israel are restored, see in the first chapter, wilt thou restore again? In the third chapter, the times of restitution. In the fifteenth chapter, restoring the tabernacle or rebuilding the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. All this, he says, makes must take place first before the Gentile once more has his eyes open to see at that coming. So that we've got many instances, you see in the Acts, that it's all working along the same lines. Well, when we get um, to the 17th chapter, we have the Apostle speaking at Athens. Now there he is speaking to those who have been brought up under the teaching of philosophy and largely idolaters. In fact, one of their own men said it was easier to find a god than a man in the streets of Athens. And when Paul arrived... And they, uh, they said, here, come and listen to this man. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, he was preaching Jesus and Anastasia. And at that day, in the great forum at Athens, there were groups, a god and a goddess, a god and a goddess, a god and a goddess, all the way around, gathered from all parts of the Roman Empire. You can believe any god or goddess you like, as long as you've kept the law of Rome, you see. Oh, he says, he's got another pair, Jesus and Anastasia. Come and listen. Jesus and the resurrection. Resurrection never entered into their mind that it might be a literal fact. 
Did you notice in the Acts 26 that we read just now, Paul said, I was exceeding mad when he was a Pharisee, and when he became a believer in Christ, they said, Paul, you're mad. Much learning has made you mad. So you see, you'll be called mad whatever happens, friends. So don't you worry. But here it is. Here's, the, here's this man, as they called a, a seed picker. In the um, authorised version, they said, let's come and hear what this babbler speak is. It means a sparrow. A seed picker. Or if you are a bit more classically minded, uh, or, or tonicus, a snapper up of unconsidered trifles. And I said, listen to him, he's, he's come to the university city of Athens, this little old Jew, and he's going to tell us. But then, of course, they had this about them. Uh, it says that they spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear some, now our version says, some new thing. But it's more than that. They spent all their time telling or listening to some newer thing. If it was newer, all that got them properly. Oh, what a snare that is. To think that you must always something new. There's one teacher that I know whose name I will not breathe. He confessed to one of his uh, fellows that every time he went round to his circle of Bible students, he must always have something new to tell them. And if that's not a snare for anybody, what is? We want something old to tell them, as old as the book itself. We don't want to tickle the ears with something new. We'd always get a good congregation, but who wants to spend his life that way? So, it says here, Paul says, um, I perceive, he says, that in all things you are too superstitious. No. That would have been an offensive way of starting. You start like that in somebody and you shut their ears. He says, I see you're a bit too religious. Oh, I said, look at him. He's a Jew and he says, we're too religious. What's he got to say? Well, he says, you've got plenty of gods here, haven't you? Gods for this, gods for that, gods for the other. And then, oh, he said, oh, dear, dear, you've got one to an unknown God. You see, you can't take any chances, so an unknown God. What did he say? He whom you ignorantly worship, I declare unto you. And he speaks in the language of the Stoics. And they gave him a hearing. Because they also agreed that God was not worshipped in temples built with hands and had any dependence upon man. It was quite independent of them. In him we live and move and have our being. He quotes one of their hymns. But coming to the point before us, he says, verse 30, At the times of this ignorance, oh, isn't that a splendid thought? Right in Athens itself, he says, the time of this ignorance. It's as though you went up to Edinburgh and said it. Oh, dear, dear, dear. The time of this ignorance. Oh, you know, it's not quite so keen as it used to be years ago. But up in Scotland they used to say, Glasgow has the capital, but Edinburgh is the capital. And then they used to say in Glasgow, they would say, Come in, come in, put on the kettle. And in Edinburgh they'd say, Come in, come in, put on the gramophone. See? Oh, yes. But here, they had to say at Athens, at the time of this ignorance, God winked at or condoned. But now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Now he commands, you see, is a change coming. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. There's going to be a day when that 
risen Christ shall judge. Well, that's to do again another little facet of the teaching of the second coming. And then when we get right to the very end, the last chapters, the last chapter of all, in the 28th chapter, we find the apostle bitten by a viper. Those who knew what a viper could do immediately said he'll drop down dead, you watch him. Then when they found he didn't, they said, oh no, he must be a god. And then he laid his hands on those who were sick, and the sickness is called a bloody flux, and that is the Greek word dysentery. That's not a a funny pain that you can't diagnose, friends, is it? That's the real thing. So we have Mark 16 being fulfilled in the last chapter of the Acts. Mark 16 says, let me make sure that we got the words, these words. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, well that's what happened in the last chapter of the Acts. And if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. So here we have in the last chapter of the Acts, some things that were embedded in Mark 16, the risen Christ still working, right through to the last chapter. Well, if you come to the first chapter again, of the Acts of the Apostles, and with that I think we shall have to bring our study to a close, you'll see that that is anticipating that very same thing. The former treatise, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began. Have you got it? See? I'm telling you what he began to do and teach in the former treatise. Now I'm going to continue with the second volume, what he continued to do and teach. And when you get to the last chapter, it's the same Christ of Mark 16 who's doing and teaching to the very end. And not until that all-day conference with the Jews at Rome do we read the quotation for the last time in Scripture of Isaiah 6, Go unto this people and say, Hearing, ye shall hear and shall not understand. And then come the words, The salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And the last word I want to deal with this evening occurs in the last verse of this chapter. No man forbidding him. Words actually are unforbidden. And if you will turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll see a little bit more clearly what that means than merely speculating about what it means to be forbidden. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Breathless silence, why you can't turn your pages over quick enough, isn't it? Chapter 2. For, verse 14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Forbidding us, there's the same word, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way, for wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. That's the climax sin of Israel, even beyond the crucifixion of their Saviour. Forbidding the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles, you'll find the antagonist of Paul was not the Roman power, it was a Jew. 
forbidding. And then in the 10th chapter of the Acts, you'll find the very words used by Peter himself, showing that he had the same spirit, he had the same idea. He acknowledged it and he changed it, but it was there. He says in the 10th chapter about Cornelius, verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then he said in verse 47, can any man forbid? That's the same word. Here's Peter saying, you know, I would have, I would have forbidden it, but what can we do? God's intervened. He's stopped the whole thing. Can any man forbid? And in the next chapter, he says, who was I that I should withstand God? The same word forbid. So the last word in the Acts of the Apostles is, the very people who did and could forbid the ministry of the gospel to the Gentile are gone. That's the first time. They're gone. They no longer have a voice to speak. They're scattered. They're finished. And Paul enters into his ministry as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, unforbidden for the first time in the history of his own ministry.